burglar who broke into a house one night. He shone his flashlight around looking for valuables. He went in and he picked up a CD player. And as he was placing it in his sack, he heard a strange voice coming from the corner of a room. And the voice said, Jesus is watching you. You know, a guy jumped out of his skin. He clicked the flashlight out. He froze for a second. He promised himself after uh, standing there in a corner in the dark, shaking for a little bit, that after his next big score that he'd go out and take a vacation. He needed a break from such work. And uh, as he was walking throughout the house again, he found uh, something else that was to his liking. It was a stereo player. He went and disconnected it. And as he began to put it in the bag, he heard the same voice again. It said, Jesus is watching you. And now he's panicking and he's looking all throughout the room and he's got a flashlight and he's shining it and he's shining it through the room and finally in the corner of the room he hears what he hears a noise in the corner he shines the light back that direction and sure enough standing on a perch is a parrot. And the, the burglar went back to him and said, did you say that? And the parrot said, yes. He said, what, what are you doing? And the parrot said, I'm trying to warn you. And the burglar looked at him and said, what... Well, who are you? And the parrot said, I'm Moses. He said, Moses? He said, what kind of stupid people would name their parrot Moses? To which the parrot responded, the same kind of people, I guess, who would name their Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that story is that, you know, the Bible is pretty clear about that truth. And that truth is this, that God is watching. And God does see all things. In the book of Hebrews, we find these words in Hebrews chapter 4. We read this concerning the accountability that we have. As, as two things jump out in my mind as I think about this site, this whole idea that, you know, there's nothing hidden from God's sight. We read this in Hebrews 4, verse 11, or actually verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intention of the heart. It says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him whom we have to do. Speaking of our accountability before God. What's interesting is in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, as he came to the conclusion of this journal that's basically a retrospect of his life, came to this conclusion, the, the concluding words of the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, when the conclusion, he says, in conclusion, when all has been heard, he says, fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. It says, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. There is nothing hidden from the sight of God, that God sees all things. And what's interesting is the Bible throughout reminds us that we should not deceive ourselves, that God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, one day he shall also reap. Now what's interesting about that is depending on one's position as far as his relationship with God and depending upon what we've got going on in our life, that could be a very terrifying thought. Yet there's another aspect to this truth that's seen. And in Psalm 139, we read these words. It has to do with the fact that, you know what? God, not only are we accountable to Him, but because of His presence in our life, uh, there's also the idea of protection, which, of, which is a very comforting thought. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes these words when he says, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there as well. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness isn't dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Isn't that a comforting thought? What's fascinating about this in our continuing study of the book of Daniel and as we get to the halfway point as we conclude Daniel chapter 6 is the idea of both our accountability to God as pointed out in this particular chapter as well as our protection by God for those who know him and are rightly related to him and walk with him. And that's a comforting thought as David wrote when he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And as we look at the life of Daniel, we'll see reflected in his life that truth. That even though he walked continually, as it seems, through the valley of the shadow of death, you know what? Uh, Daniel had no fear because he knew that God was 100% in control. His presence and his protection were a constant reminder of his love for him. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 6. And we're going to take a look as we conclude the ha- come to the halfway point in our study and conclude Daniel chapter 6. We're going to see accountability that's pointed out and also um, the protection that Daniel finds in the presence of God as we continue to look at Daniel and the den of lions. Now I mentioned throughout our study of this chapter that there are seven areas that are brought to our attention for our instruction. Uh, so far we've looked at two in depth, we've looked at a third briefly, and today we're going to look at all seven. Some of you are wondering how is that humanly possible considering how long it's taken to get to this point. Uh, I didn't say how long it'll take. I just said that today we're going to get to all seven. Whether, you, In fact, I think lunch will be served at about the uh, halfway point. But if you've got your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6. Let's pick it up at verse 1 where we continue to pick up the account of Daniel and the den of lions as we read these words. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. And these satraps might be accountable, there's the word, to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the, over the entire kingdom. The first thing that we pick up on the fact is that there's a position of Daniel after 23 years basically of, of uh, uh, non-visibility, we'll say. Uh, Daniel was promoted to a, a position of a third rulership over all of this new kingdom. So he's responsible for at least one-third of it and God has put him in a position of leadership once again. We see that he began to immediately distinguish himself as he always had throughout his his career. That he had an extraordinary spirit and God blessed him and honored him because of that. But as as usual, as we find in a position of successful people, there are going to be people in our lives who are not happy with our prosperity. And that's exactly what we find taking place in verse 4. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. But they could find no corruption or accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. It says, as they heard about Daniel being promoted over them, the other commissioners came up with a plan. And the plot was that they were going to find some way to disqualify Daniel from the promotion that was, that was impending because of this extraordinary spirit and this, uh, this commitment to excellence that was going to be honored by Darius. So they came up with a game plan. The game plan was we're going to find something in this guy's life that he's got to have some skeletons, he's got to have some dirt. Let's dig into his history here, his employment background, and maybe we'll find something. The problem was they couldn't find anything. The Bible says that he was faithful in his affairs. And the position that he was entrusted with, he was faithful to carry out his duties. 
there was no negligence that was found in him. Whatever he did, he did with excellence. He was excellent at what he did. He was the first person that the scripture mentions that was committed in some ways to excellence, to be the best that he could possibly be, which is a wonderful testimony about the person and the character of Daniel. He was excellent at what he did. He was faithful. He wasn't negligent. He got the job done. And he wasn't corrupt. There were no skeletons in this man's closet. And as a result, you would think that, well, okay, well, we can't find anything against him. I guess he'd be a good boss after all. He deserves the promotion. We'll back down. That's not what the conclusion was. The conclusion was because we can't find any way to, to uh, accuse him uh, uh, as far as truth is concerned. We'll dig something up. We'll make something up. Or we'll find something and then we'll tailor it specifically to him. And we're told that as we look at this, they said that, and then these men said, we're not going to find any ground of the accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. The only place we're going to be able to nail this guy is on his faithful relationship to God. It says, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows and said, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the perfect satraps, the high officials, governors, we've all got together, we've all consulted that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days would be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, falling prey to his own pride to be worshipped as God would be worshipped, said, that's a great idea. Bring the paperwork, I'll sign the documents. And he basically webbed, you know, he weaved a web that he himself would become a victim of, as we see as, as we go throughout this account. He signed the document, that is the injunction. Which leads us to the third thing that God wants to bring to our attention, and that is, notice the prayer of Daniel that's found in verse 10 of chapter 6. Now, what's fascinating about this, it says, when Daniel knew, he knew that the law had been signed, he knew very specifically what that law was. The law was clear. The law said basically this, that you shall not petition, pray, or worship any other god except Darius for the next 30 days. If you are found guilty of worshiping any god besides Darius, you will immediately be cast into the den of lions, corporal punishment in those days. Daniel knew exactly what had taken place. He knew exactly what the consequences would be but as often is the case with God's people, he had a difficult choice, which wasn't difficult at all because Daniel didn't make it difficult. It was simple to him. Shall I obey God or shall I obey man? And when God and man's wills are in conflict with one another, it's very simple. I will obey God. Now, some of us, as we read this, it says, When Daniel knew the document was signed, he entered his house. Now his roof chamber had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. The personal question that we have to ask of ourselves at this point is this, what would you have done in a similar circumstance? What would you have done as we go through the book of Daniel? Would you have eaten the food that God said don't eat? Because after all, now you're in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Would you have worshipped the golden image rather than be thrown into a fiery furnace? Would you now not pray to God and just take a back seat in your convictions to God? Because after all, it's only for 30 days, God. It's not like it's a long period of time. You know, no one will really, you know, I, God, you, you, certainly you understand. 
There's no way after 23 years, basically in obscurity, that you would promote me to a position of leadership only to have me be faced with a choice like this to be thrown into a den of lions and end everything that we're trying to accomplish here. I, I can't believe that you would do that. And so immediately we begin to, ration, to rationalize what we're about to do, which is compromise. See, Daniel didn't do that. Daniel continued to do what he'd always done because he recognized that there was no choice that was being offered here. And I want you to notice something about Daniel. He didn't make a big deal of it. You notice that? He didn't put a big public front on or make a big public display as far as you know his indignation regarding this law. What he did was what he had always done in his relationship to God, and that was simply he went to his home and three times a day he would face Jerusalem and he would pray to God. Because he realized that that was what he was re required to do. The book of 1 Kings tells us in chapter 8, if God's people were ever taken into captivity, that they were to pray toward Jerusalem as a constant reminder that one day God would bring them back as a nation and give them Jerusalem as their capital city or as their place to worship God. So even in this captivity and away from home, and now it's been almost 60-some years, Daniel continued as he had always done three times a day, facing Jerusalem and praying and worshiping his God. Psalm 55 says this, Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, speaking of intense prayer, and God, you will hear my voice. Isn't that wonderful? Now what's interesting is we can't get hung up on praying toward Jerusalem as believers today because Jesus told us in John chapter 4, he said this, Today, he said, you shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, for God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a whole new dynamics as far as our relationship with God is concerned. As I was growing up in a, in a different type of very uh, ritualistic, legalistic background, had no real personal knowledge of God, one of the things that was always impressed upon me is if you wanted to go and you wanted to talk to God, you had to go to the church to talk to God. As if there was some special significance that God was only found in a building somewhere. And we get so hung up on the building and the place that we forget that we don't have to go to a building to worship God. We don't have to face Jerusalem to worship God. But we can, in spirit and truth, God's people, as we've come into a relationship with God, we can worship and praise God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, wherever we are. Now, for Daniel, that was a different situation because he knew specifically, according to the laws of God, that he would have to go and he would pray three times a day and he would face Jerusalem and he would do as he's always done. But you know what's wonderful truth about this is? Daniel had perfect peace in his relationship with God. I wonder how many of us would have perfect peace if we were put in the position where we'd have to choose. Hey, guess what? You either stop worshiping your God or you lose your job. You either stop worshiping your God or you lose your life. See, there are many believers throughout the world that are given that choice on a regular basis. We have had the freedom in our country to be able to worship God as we choose. But more and more as we find persecution that will take place in the, these last days, we will find that we also will be offered the same types of choices which are no choices at all. Because the Bible clearly teaches us, in fact, in, in whenever there's a conflict between man's laws and God's laws, the Bible's very clear. If we're told to stop worshiping God, if we're told to stop telling people about Jesus, the bottom line is this. God says, hey, you know what? You are to continue preaching and teaching Jesus and Him crucified. That is not an option. And in fact, it was, it was the, the Apostle Paul who wrote these words in Acts 4 when he says, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. 
for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. What they were told was that, hey, you need to stop telling people about Jesus. You know, Jesus rose a man who could not walk, and he rose him up to the point where he was whole again. And the man was running around shouting and singing and dancing and preaching and saying, man, this is unbelievable what God can do in a person's heart. And they said, by what name or authority have you, have you raised this man who can now walk? And they said, it's by the authority of Jesus, the Nazarene, that this man has now the ability to walk. It was all God, and God did it through Jesus Christ. And everybody around him said, you've got to stop that. You've got to stop telling people that. You've got to stop saying that. And if you don't stop saying that, we're going to beat you. And their re- response was a simple one. Hey, you know what? We don't have a choice. We can't help ourselves. When you see God do a miraculous thing in the life of another person, we can't help telling people about what Jesus has done. And they took him and they beat him. And they beat him raw. They beat their backs raw to where they were bleeding and there was bones exposed and everything else. And you know what? They got up and they walked down the street and they kept on preaching Jesus because they couldn't help themselves. You know, it's really sad when you stop and think about how many of us sell out and compromise. And we're not even put to that type of test. And yet we're embarrassed. Well, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want people to think that I'm a Jesus freak or some wacko. I'll just, you know, I'll just, Lord, you know my heart. Yeah, he does. And he knows that you're afraid. He knows you're embarrassed. He knows you're embarrassed to him. Jesus made an interesting point when he said, you know what, let me tell you something. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Because God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and might that we have the power of God residing in us, that we cannot help but tell people around us of the wonderful God that we serve. You think, well, how can Daniel have such a peace about him? And, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us much about what was going on in the heart of Daniel, but I want to just share with you seven quick things. I don't want to get sidetracked too much because i got a goal here. And, uh, but on the other hand, I don't, want to, oh, I don't want to go by this quickly because every one of us at some point in our life will find ourselves in a crisis mode. And you've got to ask yourself this question. How can Daniel have had such a peace in his heart when he was facing certain death by doing what God had continued to tell him to do? Number one, Daniel committed the problem to the Lord. Are you facing lions in your life? Then I would suggest that you do the same thing that Daniel did. Daniel committed his problems to the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 55, 22, Cast your burden upon the Lord. And listen to what it says. And He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. I like that. Notice he doesn't say He will never allow the righteous to be persecuted. He doesn't say He will never allow the righteous to go through difficult times or to be put in difficult positions. But what he does say is this, when you cast or commit the problem to the Lord, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. We will be immovable. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Be immovable, steadfast. I like that. The second thing that he did was, because he was drawing from divine viewpoint, Daniel was occupied completely with Christ. Notice the words of Psalm 37. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and trust also in Him, and He will do it for you. 
He was so saturated with the Word of God in his soul that he, he was occupied totally with God and God's perspective of every situation in life. The third thing was he accepted the plot against his life as a test from the Lord. In the book of James, we're told to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you will be a man or woman, man or woman of God who will grow into maturity in your faith. Isn't that great? See, Daniel didn't look at anything in his life as coming from the hands of another human being. Daniel looked at everything in his life as coming from the hands of God. It had to pass the throne room of God. It had to pass across God's desk. Even as we see as, as Satan wanted to test Job, the Bible says that he had to come to God for permission. And God said, that's fine. You can test him. Have you seen my servant Job, a blameless and righteous man? You can test him. You can take everything from him. And when he took everything from him, you know, the Bible says that Job and all these things did not curse God once or ever blame God, but he continued to praise God. Satan came back again and said, well, yeah, no wonder he still has his health. So he lost everything that he has, but he still has his health. As long as he has his health, then I can see why he's praising you. Let's take his health away. And God said, that's fine. You can take his health away. You just can't take his life. And the same thing was true of Job as he suffered with boils all over his body. You know, he was told by his wife and others around him, how in the world can, can, can you accept this from the hand of God? Curse God and die. And here's his response. He said, can we accept prosperity from God and yet not adversity? Isn't that the, the life of Daniel? What are, you, what are you trying to say? That I can accept all these promotions and the position of leadership and authority and all the blessings of God? I can accept all that from God? And when God decides to remove all that, now I should turn on God and curse God for that? What are you, crazy? He said, I don't care what He decides to do in my life. No matter what, if He slays me, if He chooses to kill me, I'm going to trust God. That was the attitude that Daniel had in his heart. Notice also what's fascinating is this. It says that, uh, and he thanked, and the fourth thing is this. He continued to thank God for the crisis. Isn't that interesting? He thanked God. Look at verse 10 in, in Daniel chapter 6. 1 Samuel 3.18 says, It's the Lord's. Let him do what seems good to him. You notice that? He said here he was. He knew he was going to be thrown into the den of lions. There was no way to get around this law because it was the law of the Medes and the Persians which could not be revoked. In the history of that empire, nobody ever signed a law in the, in the enactment and then had it revoked afterwards. It was a law, period. He knew that when he prayed to God, his own, the only destiny that followed was he would be thrown in the den of lions. And you know what's fascinating? Look what he does. He prays and gives thanks to God. How about you? When you're going through times of difficulty, do you really give thanks to God? Or are you more like Job's friends and Job's wife? Curse God and die. I mean, how can you give thanks to God for this? How can you give thanks and praise God? You just lost your job. You just lost your finances. You just lost your health. You just been diagnosed with cancer. You only have so much time to live. How can you praise God and thank Him for that? Easy. Because I still have this moment and this breath and I'll praise and thank Him for it. What is that supposed to mean? Naked I've come from my mother's womb and naked I'm going to return. Praise God. How about you this morning? Did you give thanks to God for today? For the moment that you woke up? Some of us aren't morning people, but we're morning people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a fine line between the two. 
And it's like, man, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's like you hate to get up. Oh, man, I got to get up. Praise God, consider the option. Think about it. Well, he won't be complaining this morning. You know what I mean? It's like, man, praise God. Daniel's praising God. Here he was. He's facing death. And you know what he does? He gives thanks to God. God, thanks for this moment in time. Thanks for this moment in time that you've given me breath to praise your name and I will praise you till I don't have another breath. I like that. You know what also? He didn't lose heart. He didn't lose heart. He had perfect peace. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, we read these words, The steadfast of mind thou wilt keep in perfect peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Isn't that great? And the last thing is Daniel was victorious in his faith. And you know why he was? Because he counted on the infinite power of God. In the book of Psalms, we read this. I will cry in Psalm 57, 2 and 3. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. It says, He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. Isn't that great? What's the principle here for every one of us? It's very simple. Like Daniel, let the Lord solve the problems that you cannot. Let the Lord solve the problems that you cannot. Isn't that a wonderful truth? See, because what's interesting about this whole scene is this. Human power persecutes and God's power protects. And Daniel knew that. And Daniel had perfect peace because of that. Human power persecutes. But you know what? God's power protects. I love that about Daniel. I love that about what's going on. Daniel lived his life in complete trust of God and in complete peace as he understood the Word of God in his life. There was nothing that could shake him because God was in control of all things. Man wasn't doing this to Daniel. God was allowing this to happen for his purposes and for his glory. Isn't that great? Now, what's interesting about it is, don't, don't misunderstand, Daniel's in deep trouble from a human point of view. He did what he was told not to do, and we see the persecution of Daniel that's found in this particular section, verses 11 through 17. Notice this. It says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. You notice that? The conspirators all got together and came in person to catch him. They all came by agreement. This group of men came by agreement. Now, there could have been two or three, or there could have been as many as 122. Every one of them marched down the street, and they came to Daniel, and they found him, what? Being disobedient to this insane law. Now, the question for you and I is this. Well, how'd they know when to catch him? How'd they know? Simple. He was consistent in his relationship with God. They knew morning, noon, and night exactly when Daniel would be facing Jerusalem and praying to God and thanking Him for the God that He is. All these guys marched down the street. They knew what time they'd catch Him. If the law was enacted in the morning, they knew they could catch Him at lunchtime praying to God. Now, what's interesting about that consistency is this. How consistent are you in your relationship with God? I'll guarantee you this. 
anyone that would want to could rob our house every Sunday morning. Like clockwork. As for me and my house, we're going to be here praising the Lord Sunday morning. We're going to church. And we don't go to church so our neighbors know we're going to church. We go to church to praise God and to thank Him and to set aside some time to worship and praise Him for what He's done in our life and for the God that He is. It's like clockwork. Our neighbors know. They knew every Thursday night during you know, football season we were having Bible study. They knew. They knew every time there was a lot of people at our house, the first thing they assumed was they're having another Bible study. Which is really fascinating because sometimes there was other things going on besides that. But they said, oh, you had a Bible study again last night. No, actually, we just had people over. It was a birthday party, but, you know, thanks for noticing. And, uh, you know, and, and if you ever want to, you're more than welcome to join us. Yeah, okay, that was nice. Enough. But, <laughs> but, the, but the point is, is that, listen to me. We don't do it for this reason, but don't ever miss the fact that people notice your relationship with God. They notice if you go to church. They notice if you go to Bible study. They notice what's going on in your life. When you go to work on Monday and say, Hey, man, was, you know, what you do this weekend? You know, well, you know, hey, maybe oh, this weekend we went to Harvest Crusade. Or, hey, this weekend, you know, Sunday we went to church. Oh, yeah. But I thought weekends were made for Michelob. No, Sundays were made for God. See, people notice. Don't ever misunderstand that. People notice. And when we are consistent in our relationship with God, when they are in times of trouble, they know who to turn to. But when we're inconsistent, and there's no consistency, then there's nowhere for them to turn. Do you understand that? Daniel was consistent, man. It was like clockwork. Can you imagine? He kept doing what he had been doing. Listen to this. Daniel was taken into captivity probably about the age of 17. He's about 83 years old now, which means, what, 66 years have passed. 66 years he's been in captivity. He's faced Jerusalem. He's prayed to God. You know what? These guys weren't geniuses. They know where to look. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I love this because in the English, we lose a little bit of this, but in, in the original Chaldean language, notice in verse 11 it says, Now these men, these men, eh, translated okay in English to men, but more accurately translation would be this. But these heroes... I love God's sense of humor. What he's saying is, oh, but these heroes, these heroes, these brave heroes of the Chaldean Empire, these brave heroes of the Medes and the Persians, these big bad guys, all of them went marching down the street together, what, to nab a guy who was praying to God. What in the world? I love God's sense of humor. Yeah, these guys are heroes. They came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. What did they do? They then approached and spoke before the king. Notice they did? They went down the street. They find him praying. Aha, we got you. And there's witnesses. We all see you praying. And Daniel's praying. He's kneeling. He turns around and he just went. And he kept praying. They all, what do they all do? We're telling on you. These heroes. I'm telling. They went running back. Hey, King Darius. Verse 12. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days be cast into lion's den? The king answered and said, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Notice they set the king up again. Then they answered once the king had spoken. Then they answered and spoke before the king and said, Hey, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. 
or to the injunction what you've signed, but keeps making petition three times a day. You know what they said? Same thing they said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, man, there's these three exiles from Judah that won't worship that image that you made. They immediately ran back and told, right? Now, what's interesting about Darius, and I love Darius, because Darius, for the most part, is a man who is a man of integrity and has a wonderful heart, and as we'll see at a point point in time, he'll also surrender his life to the Lord. But at this point in time, he hasn't. But notice what it says in verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, what? He was deeply distressed. When Nebuchadnezzar heard the statement, he was outraged. How can anybody show disrespect to me? I'm God! Darius realized he'd been set up. He wasn't outraged by anything. He was distressed because he realized, you know what? He he had helped weave the web and he was a victim of his own pride. Isn't that fascinating? His whole life had revolved around him up to that point. But now he realized because of his foolishness that another man's life hung in the balance. And notice what he does. He says, and then he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. What basically is going on here, he's going, man, I, I got a major problem. And, and by the way, these guys exposed their, their motivation. Their motivation was that they hated the guy because they were racists. It says in verse 13, this exile from Judah, not Daniel, one of our co-workers, not Daniel, one of the other commissioners, not Daniel, one of the other people in authority, but you know what, Daniel the Jew, they hated him because of that. They always did, and it never, they never changed their mind or their heart about him. And so as soon as the king heard it, he was deeply distressed. He set his mind on delivering him, which meant this. He called in all of his attorneys. He called in everybody that he could. They went through all the laws of the Medes and Persians, and they were looking for one precedent that was set that they could use as a legal loophole to get Daniel out of the jam that he was in. But they couldn't find it. And he had become a victim of his own pride. There's a principle here. And the principle is this. Never hastily enter into any agreement. Never hurriedly make any decisions in life. If you ever notice about somebody who's trying to sell you something, they always give you this. Well, I got to know by today. I got to know by right now. I got to know because there's only three left, and if you don't tell me, I got five people waiting for it, and you got to tell me now. Everything's got to know now, got to know now, got to know. You know what? If you got to know now, it's no. But if you give me time to talk to my wife about it or my husband about it and you give me time to pray about it and you give me time to search the Word of God about it and you give me time to seek godly counsel about it and if you give me time, then it might be yes. But if you tell me now, I say no. See, if if Darius would have understood that principle, he would have saved himself and his nation a lot of grief. Because when they said we all got together, he should have had them all there to make sure that they all got together. Now, Darius didn't know any better to search the Word of God, but I'll guarantee you, as a believer, if we have the Word of God and we search it, then you know what? The first thing that Darius would have saw was, you know what? Hey, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You can't take my place. There's no position in life other than the one I have, and I I have it, and you can't have it. And so Darius would go, wait a minute. You can't worship me. We must worship God. And, And that would have been the end of the whole thing. But that's not what he did. The principle was, don't jump the conclusions. It's fascinating about this. The Word of God gives us clarity. Whenever you're making a decision, search the Word of God Pray about it, seek godly counsel about it, and then you'll have peace about the decision that you make. Right? Amen. Okay, Darius ran out of time. Notice what happened. He waited until sundown in verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, basically, he's run out of time. They gave him all day to come up with a loophole. He didn't find the loophole. They came back to him at night and said, wait a minute, king. 
Recognize, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. You notice what happened? The king basically was the subject of the same charges of Daniel. They say, hey, dude, you ran out of time, man. Absolute disrespect. You ran out of time, and if you don't follow through and carry out the law, then you are guilty of the same violation of the law, you're subject to the same punishment by law, and we're going to throw you in with, with Daniel in the lion's den. So what are you going to do, king? And the king can do anything but uphold the law. Isn't that interesting? Now notice this about Daniel. It doesn't say that Daniel came kicking and screaming and crying about it. Daniel, I believe that Daniel walked in perfect peace, walked before the king. The king said, you're guilty. He said, I know. He said, there's no choice. He said, I hear you. What are we going to do? I guess we're going to go to the lion's den. Would you like to lead or would you like to follow? That's fine with me. That's where I'm heading. And that's where he went. He wasn't beating and screaming and yelling and cursing God and anybody else. He just walked because he knew he had perfect peace because he was in the hands of God. There's a best-selling book that's on the best-sellers list for a number of years. It's written by a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner. The name of the book is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Let me just explain two problems I have with the title. Okay? Number one, there's no such thing as a bad thing happening to God's people. Okay? Because we know this, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. You and I need to change the way we think. If anything happens in our life, it's not bad. It's from the hands of God and it's good. So change your whole outlook. There's nothing bad that happens to God's people. The second problem I have with the title is this, when bad things happen to good people. The second part of the title I don't agree with is this, there's no such thing as a good person. So we've got a real problem with the title of the book. There's no such thing as bad that happens to God's people, and there's no such thing as a good person in the sight of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. We all need forgiven. Other than that, it's a great title. So what are we going to do here? So Darius basically says this. I love what Darius is saying at this point. He says, notice, your God, it's not Darius's God, he says, your God, what? In whom you constantly serve will deliver you. You like that? And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with a signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. Can you imagine this for a second? The, the, they throw him in the lion's den, they put a big, big stone, they roll it in the front of the opening, and the king seals it with his signet ring, which means that anybody who violates it would be guilty of the same punishment. Then all the other guys, the conspirators, all have to come up and put their seal on it too, like signing the death certificate. You're all in agreement that this is what you want to happen to this guy? Everyone's, yet. Yeah, this is great. Boom, boom, boom. But you know what's fascinating is this, is that, you know, as Darius yells in, he says, may your God, who you continually serve, wouldn't that be a great testimony? That if the world around you saw you in some type of, quote, what they would consider trouble, they would say to themselves, hey, you know what? Don't even sweat it, buddy, because, you know, it, it, your God will, will deliver you. I mean, that's the kind of relationship you have with your God. Don't even worry about it. He'll deliver you. Notice the protection of Daniel that's found in verse, starting with verse 18. It says, the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. I love the picture of that. Because here's the king, he cannot live with himself and what he has done. And the king above the lion's den is in anxiety. 
He can't eat. He's lost his appetite. He can't sleep. And the Bible says that no entertainment was brought in, which is a nice way of saying, you know what? He couldn't even this night choose from the beautiful women of his kingdom, which we regularly did. He said, you know what? I don't even want to think about it. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I don't want any entertainment. I'm just in depression. And what's fascinating about it is this. He's in depression in a palace with everything at his, at his convenience, and Daniel's at perfect peace in a, land of, in a den of lions because he knows this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you know what? In the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. While the king can't sleep, Daniel is catching some major Z's. I love that. I love this too, what I found. So it's kind of a little bit distorted theologically, but follow with me for a second. It's the den of lions and there's Daniel and he's catching some, you know, I mean, he's just having his best night of sleep, man. He's in perfect peace in his relationship with God. If God chose to allow him to be killed, that's fine too. He's going to go in the presence of God. And if he doesn't, he's still going to be there and God will protect him. So all the lions are gathering around Daniel. He's sound asleep and they all talk and saying, okay, on three, everybody, let's roar and give Daniel a start. I like that. You know, I'm kind of a demented kind of guy. But when I first saw that, I thought, you know, isn't that great? Daniel's in perfect peace, and they just want to try to shake him up a little bit. But you know what's good about this is that Daniel wouldn't be shaken by it at all. He might be going, Lord? But he wasn't shaken by it. Because he was going to be protected by God, and that's exactly what was happening here. The king returned to the palace. He couldn't sleep. The king arose with the dawn and at the break of day he went in haste to the lion's den. And look what happened. And when he came near the den, den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. Isn't that interesting how confused Darius was? A moment before, a day before, he said, your God whom you constantly serve, he'll deliver you. Well, if he was so convinced of that, why couldn't he sleep? If he was so convinced that God was able to do that, why couldn't he eat? If he was so convinced that God would deliver Daniel, why, could he stay, why did he stay up all night? And as soon as daybreak came, he ran down there as fast as he could, yelled at the, foot, at, at, at the base of this particular den and said, Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king saying, O king, live forever. Man, and you know when Darius heard those words that he was one grateful guy. Daniel said, My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before Him and also towards you, O king. I have committed no crime. I've done nothing wrong. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Isn't that great? Why did God protect Daniel? Because it was God's will at this moment in time that He would protect Daniel so that the world that Daniel lived in then would know that the God of Daniel was the God of all mankind. Isn't that great? And the reason that He protected him was because He trusted him. I'm going to challenge you to consider something. Some of us have never experienced the miraculous deliverance of God in our life because we've always sold out and compromised before we've allowed God to do a great work in our life. Some of us have never experienced deliverance because we don't trust God. That's the bottom line. If you trust Him, you won't sell Him out. Period. 
Let's take a look at the last two things. I want you to notice the punishment of his accusers. Don't miss this. And hang in there with me for a couple of minutes. And you know what? And I'll give you next week off if you just hang in there for ten more minutes. Notice what he did. The king gave orders and they brought these men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The punishment of the accusers. I don't want you to miss this. God is not mocked. God does not tolerate evil. God will make all things right. The principle is simple. You and I don't have to enact vengeance upon those who hurt us in this life. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. We live in a world that we throw the word tolerance around like it's some type of, 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 of balm for everything. God doesn't tolerate evil and neither should God's people. God is a God of justice as well as a God of love. If God will allow evil to take place in the world, then God is a liar when He says that vengeance is mine, someday I will repay. If God will allow evil to continue to flourish in our world today, then God is a liar who says that one day every deed will be taken into an account, both good and bad. God does not tolerate evil, and neither should we. We need to recognize and understand that some would try to attempt to say that somehow this is cruel on the part of God to do this to these people. But the reality is this. God is a God of justice. And His justice is swift, and His justice is complete. Why their families? Why everybody? Because God was making a statement. What was the purpose of these men in this administration? It was to protect the king. Is that not correct? They were in a position of authority. They were to protect the king. They were to protect him so he suffered no loss. They were to protect the, the kingdom so that, you know, that laws of establishment would be followed. What's interesting about that is this. These men, these accusers of Daniel, would, would destroy the kingdom for their own selfish benefit. Why? Because Daniel was going to be promoted to a highest position in all the kingdom. There was, there was a, 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 you know, a, a, an extraordinary spirit in him. He was faithful. He wasn't negligent. He wasn't corrupt. He was a godly man being put into a position of power and authority for a reason. So that he would govern wisely. When good people are in office, the people rejoice. But when evil people are there, the people perish. We need to recognize and understand that we must hold one another accountable for our actions in our society. Because if we are not held accountable for our actions, then all of society falls apart. I want to read something to you that ties in with what's going on in our country today, and I don't want you to misunderstand this. There is no joy in accountability before God. There is no joy in the fact that these men and their families were destroyed by the lions, but it was necessary to protect society. There's no joy or celebration when somebody dies on death row in our country. But there is a point where we must recognize that justice is served for the benefit of society. It's not a time to have a party and noisemakers and, and clapping and celebrating. It's a very serious and somber moment when we realize the value of human life, where we realize the consequences of our actions. We must be held accountable for what we do. One man writes and he says, President Clinton is not above the law. The Constitution... 
Constitution requires that he pay, play by the same rules and be subject to the same potential consequences for the same offenses that any citizen faces when, when uh, standing before the bar of justice. Yet we have a double standard in our country where he was allowed to have a, an attorney present with him before a grand jury so he did not make any self-incriminating statements. It says legal precedent should also apply to Clinton. Mark Furman was denied his livelihood and his reputation was damaged forever because he lied about once uttering the N-word. says former presidential hopeful Gary Hart was relegated to the slush pile of politics because he lied about a relationship with Donna Rice. Clinton should receive no less consequence from that which befell Furman and Hart. Worse, a multi-murderer may have gone free as a result of Furman lie because the, the law concludes that if a witness lies once, further testimony may be discredited. says Clinton has lied many times. His word cannot be trusted by Americans or by world leaders with whom he must interact as president. Richard Nixon went on to say, defeat doesn't finish a man, quitting does. A man is not finished when he's defeated, he's finished when, he's quit. when he quits. Bill Clinton, the comeback kid, is, is not a quitter. But it is Bill Clinton who has admitted lying, and he's an unconvicted perjurer, not the often defamed prosecutor, Kenneth Starr. Clinton and only Clinton has crippled the presidency. His political agenda is dead. He has lost his political usefulness at home and abroad, and it is time for him to step aside. A liar and probable perjurer should not be our president, and it's that simple. But many of us reason in our culture that our economy is going so wonderfully well, let's not upset the apple cart. Let's not cause any problems here. Let's just forgive and forget. To you, I warn this. God has always judged nations by the behavior of her leaders. And when our nation falls into an immoral, uh, immoral abyss, then our economy will fall quickly thereafter. You and I must understand that we should be outraged by what's going on because the Word of God and the standards of God have been so violated that we should not be taking it in stride. God does not tolerate evil. Vengeance is His. One day He shall repay. The question is, when and how will He do it? We need to recognize that those in positions of authority and, re and responsibility in times of judgment are always held in a higher standard. Attorneys and judges and law enforcement personnel are always put in a higher position of accountability to the same standard that governs our people. That's just the way that it's supposed to be. There's nothing worse than a dirty cop. There's nothing worse than a judge who's on the take. There's nothing worse than a president who lies before his people. There's nothing worse than that. And we need to recognize that that's God's standard of accountability. Should the president be held in any lesser standard than the rest of us? Absolutely not. And when he is, our system falls apart. What's fascinating is, one of the greatest lessons that hopefully all human beings learn in life is that inappropriate conduct has its consequences. What do you tell your children? What is the world being told? You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and there's no consequences as long as the polls indicate that it's okay? What do you tell people? Oh, as long as the economy's okay and the stock market's fine, it's okay. It's not okay. 1986, Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson was stripped of his gold medal in the 100-meter sprint because he had it was discovered he took a, uh, a, a performance enhancement substance before the race. And the world said, good, the cheaters shouldn't have stolen that gold medal from the guy who got the silver. Last year, Lieutenant Kelly Flynn was released from her commission in the United States Air Force because she lied about an illicit love affair she had with a married man. And I'm convinced that both of them, 
Both of them probably sacrificed much in their lives to achieve their objectives, but because of their inappropriate conduct, they were forced to learn a very bitter lesson that neither will forget. There is a price to be paid for inappropriate behavior. Our system needs us to understand that in order that the rest of us fall in line and obey the standards that have been established by the laws of government and the laws of God. We talk about Richard Nixon. Hey, you know what? I mean, the bottom line is he got what he deserved. And the same is true in this case. So it's not a Republican-Democrat issue. It's an issue of morality, of right, and of wrong. Some have asked, if nothing is done, what's the message we're giving our children? I ask you this, if we do nothing, what is the message that we're sending to the world? We need to recognize and understand something. I'm going to ask you one question to consider, and that's this. The President of the United States is a federal employee who was having a sexual relationship with another woman who was a federal employee. They were having a relationship that was on federal property and they were having it during federal time, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week when you're the President of the United States. I'm going to ask you a simple question and that's this. Could you do the same thing at your place of employment and have no consequences for such action? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that we could do that and be punished for it and have him do it and mock everything that this nation stands for. I'm not on a political soapbox. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that God is not mocked. And if we as a people do not judge our leaders to the standards of God, then God will judge our nations according to the standard and we will be victims of the same thing. The last thing is this. And finally, number seven. Notice the proclamation of the king. Then King Darius, because of the deliverance of Daniel, what a wonderful testimony to an unbelieving world. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. So Daniel was prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Isn't that wonderful? Although I, 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 do, I will say this that King Darius is still confused because you cannot legislate people to worship our God. Just like you cannot legislate them not to, you cannot legislate them to worship God. That is something that we must freely decide on our own and God gives us that choice. I want to close with the challenge as we reach this halfway point and since we're not going to be here next week, I want to offer you or issue this challenge today. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. It says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Daniel was a man who was not conformed to his world. He was a man of non-compromise. He was a man that was re- had his mind renewed by, the, the, by the, the, the Word of God Himself. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind.
There was a pastor in Africa who was overwhelmed by rebels who demanded that he renounce his faith. He refused, and the night before they took his life, he wrote the following lines that were on a piece of scrap paper that they found in the place where they held him. And he, write the, and he wrote these words, and I challenge you to listen carefully as we close. He says, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed, and I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast, I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made, I am a disciple of His, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, my future is secure, I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven and my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of my enemy, ponder at the pull of the popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or burn up till I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till He stops. And when He comes to get His own, He'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Lord, develop in me the perseverance and faithfulness to pursue Your goal for my life even in the face of rejection. I prayed about this, and I want to challenge you right now. If you are tired of living a life of compromise before God, and you want to be used by God in a mighty way as Daniel was, a man no different than you and I, then I challenge you right now to stand up and let God see that you want to take a stand for Him. If you don't, don't. But if you do, it's time to stand up. God knows I don't do this very often. But I am convinced it's time that God's people take a stand. Right where we are, right where God has us today, God wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to make a difference through us in this world. He wants to make a statement to the world around us that we have a God who can deliver people, not only from a lion's den, not from a fiery furnace, not from a diet, but He wants to deliver people from sin, people that are lost and on their way to hell, people that have no hope, without Jesus Christ. God wants you and me to be used by God so that we can tell people around us, you know what? Hey, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the great news is this, that we can have eternal life and peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I just want to confess that I have oftentimes compromised as I face crossroads similar to Daniel. And I just pray that those who are here today that have fallen short will confess and agree with you that what they did was wrong. I just thank you that you tell us if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just thank you that we can forget what lies behind and press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God, I'm just thrilled by what we see happening today, that your people will take a stand to be used by you. 
that they'll trust you as Daniel did to deliver them from all incredible circumstances that the world thinks are impossible, but with you are nothing. That you and I, we can have a perfect peace before our God. God, we just thank you that you forgive us of our sin and we thank you you've given us the power of your Holy Spirit that we can live a life that is a life of, of not of fear and timidity, but like Daniel, one, that we will take a stand and we'll be brave. God, compromise isn't even an option for your people. But as for me and our house, as for our people here today, God, today we want to serve.